0: What would Jesus say? A lot of discussion on what would Jesus do, and of course that includes what he would say. What would Jesus say? Yesterday morning, as we've heard, one Israeli and six American astronauts died tragically when their space shuttle Columbia broke up upon re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. What would Jesus say if he were here to address us? I obviously do not know, but... Let's look at Luke chapter 13, which I think would certainly be appropriate words from the mouth of Jesus at a time such as this. Luke chapter 13. Let's focus here on verse 4 in the middle of Jesus' instruction here. He speaks of the 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think, says Jesus, They were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all perish. What we should not say, what we cannot determine, is that these astronauts were judged in a dramatic manner because they were unusually sinful. What we should take from such an event is the reminder that we must all be ready to meet God. We will all die someday, less dramatically, but just as completely. And we should live so as to assure that our death does not constitute a judgment, but rather a rescue from this fallen world. Thank you, Jesus. That's wise counsel. And that's helpful at a time like this. What would Jesus say? I do not know, but he may well call us to weep with those who weep. After a 16-day mission in space, these astronauts were only minutes away from landing at Cape Canaveral, where they were anxiously awaited by their loved ones, just minutes from reunion. These very people were informed that their loved one would never come home again. Weep with those who weep, Jesus may tell us, and that would be a good word. But what would Jesus say? Superimposed upon the image of grieving mates and children and families, we see the image today of celebrating enemies. Now, we won't find those images in television. It would not be seen as appropriate in more ways than one. But there are people who are celebrating. I think particularly of the one astronaut, a decorated Israeli war hero, and their very first Israeli to penetrate space. His return was greatly anticipated. It was billed as a grand opportunity for Israel to enjoy a rare reason to celebrate in the midst of a season of terrorism and upheaval and political trial. In one place it was said that there were Palestinian and Israeli children that had even joined together to follow uh, Mr. Ramon's progress in space. Their cooperation was billed as symbolic of hopes for a brighter future in the region. But he will never receive his hero's welcome. He is gone. Yet while Israel weeps in a way that would be hard for us to imagine today, her enemies are celebrating. There are those who rejoice in any tragedy that Israel suffers and those who are gleeful that this man did not survive and come home. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus say as he sees grieving sons of Jacob walk past celebrating sons of Ishmael who hate Israel with great intensity? I'm not speaking here on a national level, but I'm talking here about the individual. What would Jesus counsel? What would he say? Picture the scene. It's enough to make your blood boil you see such suffering and such difficulty, such disappointment and such trial, and you see people celebrating. What would Jesus say? What should be the personal response in such a situation? Matthew chapter five and verse 43. Matthew 5:43, Jesus said, "To his Israelite hearers, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. That, Jesus, is crazy advice. It doesn't work. It makes no sense. It's simply too much to ask. And I think perhaps Jesus could quietly respond by turning his palms and exposing the wounds inflicted on the day that he was tortured to death by his enemies for whom he died. What does Jesus say? We turn our attention this morning to a few of the teachings of Jesus concerning the life of radical love to which he called his people. Let's remember that we have considered thus far in our series on love That God is love. This is His very nature. It flows from Him, unimpeded, naturally, unhindered, unsullied. Many seek to interpret this love however they choose, to say God's love means whatever our agenda is. We'll look at love in that way. But the Bible allows none of this. God's love is epitomized by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. The Father gave His Son who willingly died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. That is love. God's love is best seen with His wrath draped over the corpse of His beloved Son, whom He loved with an eternal and perfect love. God's love is His native orientation then to abundantly give Himself as the greatest good to others apart from what they deserve. And conquered by that love, we now as God's people are called to be those who live a life of love as imitators of our Savior. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. This love will flow naturally from God. It will not flow naturally from us. It is a supernatural love that flows from the Lord and works in us and transforms our human loves and our natural responses By nature, we are small. By nature, we are self-centered and self-seeking and self-promoting. And by nature, we hate our enemies and even love to hate our enemies in some twisted way. But God has saved us to the bigness of soul that lays down our lives for those who hurt us and hate us and are our enemies. Unlike our corruptible human loves, divine love does not demand returns. It does not feed off of the natural love of others toward us. This love flows unbidden and unhindered from the divine nature itself, and it is to this life of love that God has called us as his people to live in a weird way in this world, a powerful way, a way that has been won for us by God himself. This love will take us down avenues we could never otherwise traverse. And that leads us to the teachings of Jesus concerning the ethic of love. I'll just lay it out simply here to say, first of all, that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. He calls you to love your neighbor. Matthew chapter 22. We'll look at a few passages where Jesus discusses this great theme of love, and his teaching was radical. It was unique. But we know as he has given his life on the cross in love for his enemies that he has every right to teach us. And so he says, love your neighbor. Matthew 22 and verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now the rabbis of Jesus' day commonly debated this point. It's very likely that Jesus dealt with this very question on numerous occasions. How do you summarize the law into a succinct statement? Now, that was always a divisive question, not only because there were different opinions, but think about it. Anytime you're asked to summarize something, you'll always leave something out, and people can always pick at that. It just allows for very cheap shots very easily. We notice here that Jesus hits it, and he hits it rightly. Verses 37 and 38, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5. He goes to the Mosaic Law, and he says, Here is the essence of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Those aren't three different ideas, but just to say, to love God with all that you are. The second is like it, and he draws here from Leviticus 19 and verse 18 and says this is to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on this. Every other command flows through these ideas, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we see here the command from Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's consider the extent of this command. How broadly must we extend neighbor love? For this answer, we turn to a separate but very similar incident in Christ's life we find here Jesus' perspective that neighbor love is to be applied very broadly indeed. We're familiar with this passage, but let's look at Luke 10 and verse 25. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus and listen as he teaches, as he illustrates. He commands us to love our neighbor. Here he describes the extent of that love. How broadly are we to extend neighbor love? Neighbor love, we find in this section, applies to everyone, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, let me just walk you fairly quickly through this section, this familiar story that Christ tells to illustrate his belief and his teaching. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man seeks to test Jesus. The Greek word does not necessarily indicate hostile intent. But he wants to put Jesus' teaching in the spotlight. Well, Jesus answers with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? I don't think Jesus is agreeing with him that you can inherit eternal life through human merit, which this man assumes, but Jesus is just seeking to expose him is seeking to find out what's in his heart, to display it for all to see. He answered, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure how the man came up with this answer, but it is obviously the same answer that Jesus gives. It is exactly what Jesus believes. And so, verse 28, we're not surprised at all to hear from Jesus, You have answered correctly. You are right. This man read the Old Testament law. He distilled the essence of that law to Jesus' satisfaction. The Greek word used here is a word from which we draw our idea of orthodox. He was orthos. He was orthodox. He had it right. Now, I imagine the man experienced a split second of self-satisfaction in that moment. Let's think about that. Jesus is the most popular teacher in Israel. A word had gotten around. Everyone knew who Jesus was. Everybody pretty much knew who everyone was in Israel. It was a, They had that capacity, but everyone knew who the teachers were. You knew who the great soldiers were, and you knew who the great rabbis were. And news had gotten out that this boy had stumped the experts at age 12, And news had gotten out that he could hold great crowds spellbound by his teaching and by his stories and by his grasp of scriptures, which no one could really equal. Everyone knew that. And here is this man who's in this world. He's a rabbi, an expert in the laws of Moses, and he hears from this great teacher in Israel You have distilled the Old Testament law properly. You're right. If there was that split second of self-congratulatory satisfaction, it was quickly shattered by what Jesus said next. Verse 28, do this and you will live. You want to inherit eternal life through your human effort? Keep the law and you'll inherit eternal life. It's not... Jesus laying out from his teaching and his perspective what he believes about salvation. He's just saying, if you can do this, you'll have eternal life, hypothetically. The problem for this man had nothing to do with the academic part of things. It rather had to do with the moral aspect. Academically, he got the right answer. A plus on this quiz. He read the law rightly. His problem was what Your problem is and mine. Follow through. He began to quickly shrivel under the convicting light of what he had just said and what Jesus has now said. You are right. That's the law. Now do it. That presented a problem. He could write the right answer on the test, but to live it out was another matter altogether. The man quickly assessed the meaning of Jesus' challenge. He quickly assessed the weakness of his own uh, moral capacities, and he saw that there was a great chasm between the two, and so he quickly Moves to justify himself, verse 29. He wanted to justify himself. We have this divine revelation explaining why he comes up with this response. He wants to make himself look well. He wants to get himself off the hook that he had just nailed into the wall. So he asked Jesus, because he wants to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus has established that loving your neighbor is essential to the fulfilling of God's will. Now, he, now we consider the meaning that Jesus attaches to the designation neighbor. To whom does this word apply? Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous, it fell sharply from the heights of Jerusalem down to the Jordan River. And along this 17-mile path, robbers found it easy to hide in the rugged and rocky terrain. It's not quite as difficult a journey today as it was then, but even today, it's a dangerous route. Priests and Levites routinely traveled to Jerusalem to serve at the temple according to assignment. This is just in the the setting of their day, a very understandable scenario. This dangerous road winding its way down to the river, and we have a priest and a Levite. Priests and Levites are always traveling that road to go up to the temple to serve, and they're leaving uh, from the temple for various duties or to return home, now you'll notice here that these two are apparently a traveling away from Jerusalem, as the priest is said here to be going down, and that would seem to be location uh, that he is traveling down the road toward the Jordan, away from Jerusalem. And without any additional information, we should assume that the Levite is going in the same direction. The priests and Levites, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, it was characteristic, if not universal, that they would travel in groups. They were heading there in groups to fulfill their assignment at the temple. These two individuals are apparently alone, and they're traveling away from Jerusalem. So there are absolutely no excuses. Now, what Jesus says next has to hit his listeners very hard. Verse 33. Though these two men have left this stranded, suffering man alone... Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jews and Samaritans were obviously bitter enemies. And so the idea of a Samaritan hero in a story told by Jesus is very distasteful, certainly to this expert in the law. But by inserting this twist in the story, Jesus skillfully challenges the man and now lays out the obvious question, a question that will hang this legal expert where he stands. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Remember, this man's trying to justify himself. He's trying to escape from the implications of Jesus' teaching. Now Jesus gives him this story. There can be no other answer. Which one, I think the meaning is, which one acted like a neighbor as stipulated in the law of Moses? He's not saying which of these three men live next door to the man. He's saying, as the law of Moses stipulates, which of these three acted as a neighbor? Now, Jesus has shifted something right out from under the feet of the man. How did this man understand the word neighbor? He understood it in terms of locality. He understood it as a designation. Who is designated neighbor? Jesus here shifts the idea of neighbor to be that of an action Not simply being a neighbor, but acting as a neighbor. It's not so much a question of who constitutes a neighbor as who performs like a neighbor. That's what the law is about. And so Jesus teaches here that neighbor love is not to discriminate. As we stand in the shadows and we watch this man shrivel under the teaching of Christ, we have to sense in our own heart... That we too fall short of this command. This extent is the extent of this command is very broad. Neighbor love is very widely applied, it includes humanity, everyone in your circle of influence. That means for us, as Jesus' followers, our neighbor, the one whom we are to love, is anybody who is at school with you, it's anyone in your church. It's anyone in your family, everyone in your neighborhood, that's your neighbor. Everyone in the crowded store, the distracted clerk, the person who's standing right in your way, the little kid who irritates you, they're all your neighbors. We should walk into that place thinking of it in those terms realizing that all who come under our influence or are in contact with us are our neighbor and we're to love them. The person we know, the person we do not know. The person who can do us good, the person who will do us no good. Everyone who causes you trouble, who hates you, who wants nothing but ill for you is your neighbor. Every crowd, every gathering, every person that you talk to, in every situation that you enter in your life, whoever you're with is your neighbor. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, if you love as God loves it will make no difference. Everyone is your neighbor, and everyone must be seen as a potential recipient of your time, your attention, your help, and your love. Now, everyone is a very broad term, but I think this is exactly what Jesus means. For we see in this broad extent that neighbor also applies to our enemies, and Jesus made that very clear. Matthew 5, let's go back where we started. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's quoting here Leviticus 19.18 as far as the command to love your neighbor. There is no Old Testament command to hate your enemy. But apparently this was a popular notion in that day, widely promoted in Israel at the time. Although there is virtually no written evidence that uh, is available to us today, apparently this was common understanding that you are to hate your neighbor. This is righteous when you serve God and are his people to hate those who hate you because you are God's people. So you hate your enemy and love your neighbor. Verse 44, but I tell you, says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus chooses the worst kind of enemy to illustrate his point. He speaks of the persecutor, not simply of someone who causes us trouble, but someone who causes us suffering because we have done what is right and good. That enemy who treats you wrongly because you're doing right, you are to love that person. How do you love such an enemy? What does Jesus teach us? I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I take those as parallel ideas. Love your enemy. Let me say that again in a different way. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you have an enemy? Do you have someone who does you wrong on a consistent basis I don't mean enemy in the psychological sense of the term that we hate them, or they hate us necessarily, but someone who brings misery in your life on a consistent basis. Do you have somebody in your life that way? Then you have a prayer project. You've got something to pray about. You should love your enemies because God loves His enemies. He shines sunlight and He sends rain upon the unrighteous, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. God sends sunlight and rain on his enemies in his grace. Any pagan can greet someone they like and can be kind to someone who causes them misery. We must strive, however, to be like God, not just the pagans. Verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's apply this for a few moments. Jesus does not mean, I don't think, that we should permit everyone to take advantage of us every time they try to do so. Let's look above at verse 38, for here we see what might be seen in our view here, just looking at it this way, as application of what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that is an Old Testament statement. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Also, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus does not mean here that we should permit everyone to take advantage of us every time that they try to do so. What Jesus is seeking to do here is to take the essence of the law, which was simply, as some have described it, as a dam holding sin back. But Jesus is here trying to dry up the water, dry up the sin entirely. It's not simply being fair. If someone does wrong, they receive for the wrong that they've done. There's something more to it than that, says Jesus. It's not eye for eye. It's love for hate. That's my ethic. And that will describe the Old Testament law much more fully than the simple laws and rules and regulations of Moses. This is the fulfillment of the law. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. So I don't think, getting back to the point, that this is saying we should let our enemy take advantage of us any time that they try to do so. The context here is daily life. Somebody asks you for a tunic. Somebody strikes you on the cheek. Somebody wants you to go with them a mile. The context is daily life. Jesus has in view here situations in which the only reason for not loving someone is our own selfishness and our own pride. These words need to be viewed in light of all of Scripture. Jesus is not, for instance, laying down guidelines for a nation. That nation is attacked, and they say, Well, we need to turn the other cheek, and so we should be attacked over and over and over again. That nation is destined for quick extinction. And that and Jesus had other things to say to nations. For instance, Romans chapter 13. We're to apply this wisely in light of the rest of Scripture. This passage is not saying, for instance, that if you see someone walking into your house and they're walking out stealing some of your things, that you go, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold the truck a minute. I want to get you something else and bring it out. You've taken my tunic, now I want to get you my cloak. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. What he's trying to do is to get down to the essence of our own selfishness and pride and our hostility that seethes down within our soul apart from Christ and his power. And he says there at that point, give to those who take, love those who hate. And as we put together all of his teaching, it's clear that love for God And his truth will sometimes pit us against our enemy. And that was clear in Jesus' case. Matthew chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, he takes a whip and he cleans out the temple. Now, If we have an idea here that loving our enemy means that all we do is let them take advantage of us and we just simply turn the other cheek, letting them do whatever they want to do, that's not how Jesus applied his ethic. In Matthew chapter 23, this very book issues a scathing, lengthy rebuke to the Pharisees. He calls them serpents, snakes, and that wasn't a compliment. He is criticizing their false religion. So we should not get the idea here that when Jesus says, love your enemies, that it means that you simply have a wiener for a backbone. What we should see, though, looking at it from our angle, is that as he teaches, there's an X on his wrists, waiting for a Roman spike. That's how he loves his enemies. He gives them what is absolutely best for them. He loved them as he loved himself, and he calls his people to love our enemies as we love ourselves love for one person may force us at times to resist an enemy love for another person may deny us the opportunity at times to love an enemy the key here is that we have a renewed heart which is free of hate and it's free of selfishness and pride free of self-interest that harms an enemy He encourages us here to have a heart that knows when to take time and material resources and to meet the physical needs of an enemy. It knows how to meet the spiritual needs of an enemy. It is the experience of assessing God's power by faith to love the unlovely sacrificially and to do so willingly with a view to eternal reward. Let me say that again. It's the experience, this love, is the experience of assessing God's power by faith to love the unlovely sacrificially and to do so willingly with a view to eternal reward. Did Jesus' followers get the point? They got the point. Let's note Romans chapter 12 in the writings of Paul. I believe this is the foundation, Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. This is the foundation of Paul's teaching here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. What did Jesus say to do to those who persecute you? Bless and do not curse. Paul says in Romans twelve fourteen, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Where did Paul get that? Verse 17 of chapter 12. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. In the right sense of the term, Paul got the point, and he preached it passionately. Peter got the point. First Peter, chapter two, and really, the entire book of First Peter could be, in many respects, a pillar of this book, is the teaching of Christ to love our enemies, to bless and not curse those who curse and do not bless. First Peter, chapter two and verse 23 speaking to slaves who are facing harsh treatment, suffering unjustly. He calls them to the example of Jesus, who in verse 23, it is said, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Chapter 3 and verse 9. Chapter 3 and verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil or insult for insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Where's Peter getting this information? Where's Paul getting this information? Through the divine uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly, but they, I believe, are drawing from the teaching of Christ to love our enemies. This is how we deal with trouble. So the command, we're to love our enemies. The extent, it is to be broadly applied to all people. The degree, to what degree must we extend neighbor love? Let's go back to Matthew 22 and look at the degree to which we must extend neighbor love. It's possible at this point to say, okay, we're to love all people, even our enemies, and to think that to do so is something very light Just sort of kind regard for everyone. Jesus doesn't let us off that easily. Matthew 22, verse 39, we read it earlier, but it says, Love your neighbor. And then those really tough two little words love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a command to pursue self-esteem, let's we have to say in these days since the latter part of the 20th century. There's only two commands here, not three. He's not saying that you first love yourself, then you have the capacity to love other people. He's saying two things. You love God and you love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? That's what he's describing here. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. As you right now love yourself. As you daily take care of yourself, you're concerned about your body, you watch your own interests, you're aware of your needs, treat your enemy just like that. Treat others the same way that you treat yourself, even your enemies. Now, there are those who are hostile to all of us in our personal lives, I hope, and I think it's probably the case. I don't think there's anyone here who has somebody who's jumping up and down, rejoicing that you have suffered for doing something good. Maybe that's the case, and that's a heavy load of suffering to bear. But to some degree, you understand the struggle. To some degree, we understand Israel's struggle today, in as I have mentioned earlier. We understand it in our own trial of September 11th as we saw images of people celebrating in the streets, but bring that now down to home where it really rests with you. There are people probably in your life who bring misery. There are probably some people who rejoice when things go poorly for you. There's an antagonist. A person, really, if the truth were known, that you wish would just go away forever. Does your treatment of that person reflect the love of God? Or do you respond to that person like the world responds under similar circumstances? To avoid that person and just hope that you never see them again. To seethe with bitter anger and hostility. To just write them off as small and inconsequential. I'll consider the source, move on. We spit in the dirt, spin on our heel, and leave. Or maybe it's even to the point of retaliation. You're so angry and you're so bitter, you are going to get even. And if there's suffering and trial in their life, you will have a hard day not jumping up and down with joy. Do you practice blessing your enemies? Well, I think in light of these questions, we've all got to admit as we stand before Christ that we stand there in abject spiritual poverty. Blessing our enemies and loving those who curse us, doing good and loving our enemy as we love ourselves are things that we do not find natural, we do not find easy, and we often blow it. We don't have it in us to love people that way. But through faith, here is the hope and here's where we need to stretch and here's where we need to submit to God and his leading. Through faith, we can submit to God's command and we can actively obey that command and love that person in the way that they ought to be loved in the way that is best for them. God's love can flow through you to act in that person's very best interest, no matter the personal sacrifice that is required, it's to this that Christ saved us. What is the reward? The reward is huge. The reward is that you will identify with your heavenly Father who loved you this very way. He looked at your wrong, He looked at your sin, He looked at your rebellion, and He sent His Son to die in your place. To give to you exactly what you needed, though you didn't deserve it. When we treat our enemies that way, we sign up on God's side. And so there is, awaiting us then, reward. The reward of joy and glory, knowing that we have followed Christ And we have loved an enemy. Now I know as this filters down into our personal lives and perhaps as you apply it in your own soul and the spirit leads, there can sometimes be some very difficult application points to know how to work this out and what to do and what not to do. There is a time for war. There is a time for rebuke. There is a time to resist But Jesus lays out for us here an ethic of neighbor love that calls us to love our enemies as Jesus loved us and to not dismiss that by saying, I'm more righteous than my enemy, therefore I will be angry and I will retaliate or I will ignore. Yes, it's difficult to know how to apply this ethic at times depending on circumstances, but what we must be driven by is this hope that we can stand in eternity before Christ and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I sent you into an unlovely world to love the unlovely, and you did. You loved your neighbor. Everywhere that you were, you were aware and awake and sensitive to what others needed, and you gave it. You laid down your life. You laid down your anger. You laid down your bitterness and pride. You laid down your sin, and you allowed my love to flow through you to be a blessing even to those who cursed you. There is great reward in heaven for those who love their neighbor's as they love themselves. And the only way that we'll do that is to love God with all of our heart. Because it's not, it doesn't seem like it's always in our best interest to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is where faith has got to drive us, has to motivate us to do what God calls us to do. And so let's bow for prayer and pray for God's help because we need it. And I encourage you in this moment of quiet, also to pray for one another, to pray for me, to pray for each one here in your assembly and for God's people throughout the world that we would pray for our enemies or pray for one another that we would be able to do this and, I think, in the quiet of this moment, to pray for our enemies. May God sense that as our prayers ascend, that we are bringing before him those that cause us difficulty and we are asking God to bless and not curse. Let's do that work in the quiet of our heart as we come before him in prayer. That we know you must perform in our hearts. And we know that even venturing into these areas and talking about these matters, it means that perhaps there will be increased enemies in our life that we might learn to apply your truth and know the joy of loving those who do not love us. God, I also pray then that you will give us strength for the future days. But I pray, Lord, that right now that you will do a great work in the hearts of your people. There are antagonists in our lives. There are people who have hurt us. There are enemies of our soul. There are people who rejoice when things go wrong in our lives. Lord, may we see all of these relationships as an appointment from you. May we also see, Lord, that you have called us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse and to pray with diligence for them. Teach us to pray for our enemies and transform us as a church as we do. God, I pray that as we would go from this place, that we would enter into this world, wherever we go, whatever we do, considering those who are around us, not self-centered, navel-gazing people, want the rest of the world to just stay out of our way. But I pray that we'd be awake and aware and that we'd be an influence for Christ in this world wherever we go, whatever we say, whatever we do, whoever we touch. And I ask that you will open doors of opportunity for us this week to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Teach us in the small things to be aware and to be helpful and to be good. And teach us, Lord, in the big things, the times of difficulty where this is so hard to apply. May we be faithful to this call. And may we love our enemies as we love ourselves. Teach us, Lord, we need your teaching, we need your help, and we need your power, because you alone can do this through us. So we pray in faith, leaning upon your purposes, that the mind of Jesus Christ would permeate our minds so that we think and act in love. Lord, what a tremendous privilege this is, for the gods of this world are not gods of love. There is no pure and perfect triune love from eternity past in any other god. The gods of the pagans fought and (coughs) schemed and battled with each other as selfish and grasping people. The god of Islam knew no loving relationship within the perfections of his being, and his love is cool toward his people, and so their love is cool toward their enemies. But you have called us to a whole, uh, an entirely different vision. You have revealed to us an entirely different vision and called us to a different ethic. To love our neighbor as ourself is simply the privilege of imitating your character and your cause. And so I pray, God, that you will motivate us to this end, that we will be called your people as we live a life of love. This is our prayer of commitment to you, and more importantly, Lord, our prayer of pleading with you to do this work in our heart as we walk in obedience. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.